Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The 1980s saw the rise of a number of Australian bands that had global hits. Just think of Men at Work's song, Down Under. At the same time, Australian Aboriginal bands were also making a mark, often fighting their way past racism and discriminatory policy decisions to get in front of audiences. And their message was one of defiance and resilience. We'll hear from some of the musicians who made a difference right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. An Ojibwe chef has opened a restaurant in Wisconsin on Lake Superior. Lena Tran of Station WUWM reports. Mijim is on Madeline Island, a sacred place for Ojibwe people. It's a homecoming for Chef Bryce Stevenson, a member of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior, Chippewa. He says he wants the place to represent the Red Cliff and Bad River Bands, who were forcibly removed from the island. I want to reclaim a little spot on the island with our traditional foods and to take those foods and just make them accessible. Mijim's focus is seasonal, serving up meats like venison and bison alongside wild rice, mushrooms, ramps. They aim to source products from native-owned businesses. Stevenson has been cooking since he was young, using commodities like ramen, rice When things started getting rough for my mom and her marriage, she was working three jobs night and day, and there was five of us, and I, I, I had to cook a lot. You know, I had to cook dinner for my siblings. He entered the food industry in Milwaukee and worked in fine dining spots across the country, but he always told himself he needed to open a restaurant where he was from. I just kept putting in my head, like, I, I have to go back to Redcliffe. I need to open it up where I'm from. I need to, you know, make something like this up there because nothing like it has ever existed. The island is a summer tourist hotspot. Stevenson says there aren't many expressions of current indigenous culture. With Mijim, he wants to show Native people are there and thriving. For National Native News, I'm Lena Tran in Milwaukee. At college graduation ceremonies across the nation, universities also award honorary doctorates. As KMBA's Rhonda McBride tells us, one of those went to an elder in Juneau, Alaska. Anna Eller's love affair with Tlingit weaving began as a small child when she saw her uncle in a July 4th parade wearing a Chilkat blanket with fringe that seemed to have a life of its own. The fringe was very flowing and graceful. The colors and the design, my little four-year-old eyes just fell in love with it. And I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life, was to make those. It wasn't until 20 years later that she shared her dream with a state lawmaker while working at the state capitol. When Ellers explained she would have to take a year off from work to learn to weave, something she couldn't afford to do, a group of Alaska Native lawmakers got together and wrote a bill to give her a grant equivalent to a year's salary. And it came just in time for Ellers to work under Jenny Clunot, then in her 90s, and a master at using mountain goat wool and cedar bark fiber to weave knowledge 
that is precious. Jenny Quinnott said we were not to be stingy with the knowledge that she gave us. Knowledge that Ellers used to teach more than 300 students. A spirit of generosity the University of Alaska Southeast recognized during its graduation ceremony this year. I am honored to present Anna Ellers with the Honorary Doctorate of Fine Arts. Congratulations, Dr. Ellers. (laughs) And at 68, Dr. Ellers isn't done yet. The project I'm doing is the biggest showcat blanket in the world. The design is a secret until the blanket goes on a national tour in 2025. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. The Kuskokwim Consortium Library in Alaska is being honored by the Institute of Museum and Library Service. Senator Lisa Murkowski nominated the Bethel Library, which provides internet and educational support. It also works to preserve Yupik culture. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education sovereignty. It begins with us. Early bird registration ends July 18th at NIEA.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. You might be familiar with 80s bands from Australia, like Midnight Oil, Men at Work, and In Excess. But Aboriginal bands, like No Fixed Address, Colored Stone, Blackfire, and others, were also making their presence known in Australia at the time. The music of Aboriginal rock bands reflected the push for human rights and equality. This included the burgeoning land rights movement and protests over colonization and dispossession arising from the 1988 Australian Bicentenary. Today we're taking a look back at a pivotal time in Aboriginal history through rock music. We'll hear music and interviews with influential musicians. We also want to hear from you. Are you familiar with Aboriginal bands? Can you draw parallels with the political issues from the time? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also post a comment on any of our social media pages. Our first guest is joining us by Zoom from Perth in Western Australia. Dr. Shino Kanishi. She is a historian and a Yaru woman. Shino, welcome to Native America Calling. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Well, appreciate you joining us. I know it's uh, pretty early in the morning, like shortly after midnight there where you're at. So we really, really appreciate you uh, on the air with us. But please kick us off, Shino, and tell us why did so many Aboriginal rock bands in the 1980s emerged? What was the catalyst? Well, I think the the 1980s was a a really key moment. So um, in Australia, up until the early 1970s, 
Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people um, who are our other Indigenous people here in Australia lived under very strict government um, controls. So we had separate um, legislation called Protection Acts, which controlled where individuals could move, where, who they could work for, even who they could marry. Um, so there was really severe restrictions. And then they were finally, those acts were repealed um, by the um, early 1970s. So from this period on, you get a real sort of resurgence in um, Aboriginal people being able to express themselves um, and kind of start to identify collectively. Um, so we have the emergence of a pan-Aboriginal identity um, where people who had been kind of sequestered on um, government reserves or missions um, were sort of moving to urban areas and, um, you know, mixing with other Aboriginal people, sharing their experiences of um, that period of oppression um, up until the, the 70s. And so we just get this really um, vital kind of cultural outpouring in the arts. So music is a real key part of that. Um, and it's just the sort of the, the 70s and the 80s is the real first opportunity for, for Aboriginal people to, um, you know, start to have freedoms and also start to um, reckon with the history of colonisation and the history of assimilation, which um, attempted to erase uh, um, Aboriginal identities. So there was this, um, this period allowed Aboriginal people to start, um, you know, asserting that we have pride in our identity um, and to start countering those racist assumptions of um, Aboriginal people being inferior. Um, so, yeah, I think the music as well as in literature and visual arts and painting, theatre, um, there's all these really vital cultural programs happening um, which contribute to uh, Aboriginal people finding their identity. So it was a really rich um, period and, and I think it's just such a key period for allowing Aboriginal people to talk to others um, and, and start to... Um, kind of claim the rights of self-determination and, um, you know, uh, trying to decide uh, their own futures and um, move towards it. So, yeah. Chino, thank you for, for starting us off. And it just sounds like a really exciting time of empowerment. Now let's hear from Ricky Harrison. He's a singer and songwriter with the band No Fixed Address. Formed in 1979, No Fixed Address fused rock and reggae and were largely popular with Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal audiences in the 1980s. In Australia, they've been honored by various musical awards, a mural, and a street in their name. There also is a new book titled No Fixed Address, the story of Australia's trailblazing Aboriginal rock and reggae band. I asked Ricky about the messages in their songs. Our songs were um, about our experiences as um, Aboriginal people living in you know, in urban society, I suppose. Uh, first song, like political song, was uh, From My Eyes. 
we were not really uh, looking at writing political songs, we were writing songs about our, our own experiences, so we didn't seem as uh, political. After a while, all the songs that were coming out, we realised, oh, you know, these are political songs that we're writing, so it sort of inspired us to write more because we could see with the audiences that we were getting and we were starting to get more people coming to our shows and, and uh, mainstream audiences as well. And Ricky, when you reflect back on this period, roughly 40 years ago, early 1980s, around that time, what was the landscape there with regard to Aboriginal rights? And, and what were the issues that were right on your mind and, and had you inspired and had you had you writing songs about? Well, for myself, it was um, because I, I'd been born on a mission, on an Aboriginal mission. So we were like enslaved on the mission for, you know, for 100 years, all my people. So we only got out in 65 and moved to Morwell. There's only like three families allowed to live in one town, three Aboriginal families. And But at the time when we were in the 1980s, the whole thing was revolved around land rights. So there were land rights movements throughout Australia that there was the thing about trying to get some rights back for uh, Aboriginal people. The thing was we, we were still like struggling to get outside the welfare system, our, the health of Aboriginal people, the deaths in custody, still exists today. It's even, apparently it's even worse statistically, but that was the whole thing back then, you know. We were um, basically came off the mission, live on the welfare system. There's a lot of racism around at the time too, so a lot worse than today, I'd say, but it still comes back to the government not really responding and being forthcoming about everything. Here you guys are, you're performing, you're traveling, you're doing gigs. What was the reception like from Aboriginal audiences and non-Aboriginal audiences too? So when we got into the wider community, we, we tended to get a lot more people coming to our shows. We actually, had, after we made a movie called Wrong Side of the Road, ended up touring Australia with a, well, some of the major acts in Australia, like Cole Chisel, Men at Work. Uh, in excess, so Midnight Oil. So they picked up on us and we started performing at their shows be- before their audiences and as the opening act. We performed with Ian Jury and ended up with Peter Tosh and The Clash and, you know, and all these bands. So that sort of gave us a bit more access to, to different audiences. That is Ricky Harrison from the band No Fixed Address. Also in the interview, we heard the song From My Eyes from the album of the same name. So no, no fixed address. Uh, what are your, some of your favorite songs by that band? Oh, um, I think, um, I, I think I sort of really only know uh, We Have Survived, um, which, um, you know, kind of reflects on... Um, surviving colonization and um and the government policies of assimilation so you know that that's the sort of um main song i i remember but you know it has a real powerful message Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i really enjoyed that interview and hearing some of that music and the land rights movement 
you know, is, is just reflected in so much of the music during this time. Um, how prominent was the movement there during this era of the early 1980s? At what stage was it at? Well, by the, um, I mean, Aboriginal people have been politically, you know, demanding land since the early 20th century. Um, and, but a lot of those early um, protests and demands sort of fell on, or, or you know, the government didn't really respond. So it, it, it wasn't until uh, the changes in the late 60s, um, so we had a referendum which um, changed our constitution to remove um, discriminatory clauses, and, and this was hoped to allow equal citizenship rights for Aboriginal people. Um, but land was really a key thing that, that Aboriginal people wanted. Um, they wanted, you know, to live on their land, to have control of land, but also to protect land from mining interests. Mm -hmm. um, and, but there was no real rights. It was really just up to governments to um, sort of allow Aboriginal people to live on government reserves and the former reserves. So in the 1970s, due to Aboriginal protests... Uh, like Chanel, we're going to have to take a short break, but I definitely want to let you continue telling us more about the land rights movement in Australia. We'll be right back. Native drag queens are among those fighting to perform after their acts are under fire in some states. Conservative lawmakers are putting limits on shows they say are lewd or harmful to some members of the public. To start off Pride Month, we'll talk to drag performers about the changing landscape for their work. That's on the next Native America Calling. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing our conversation about Aboriginal rock bands from the 1980s and the political issues raised in these songs. If you hear parallels to issues that Aboriginal people face during this time, then please join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Call now with your comments or questions. We've got Shino Kanishi on the line in Perth, Australia. And, you know, before break, you were explaining uh, some of the background on the land rights movement there in Australia and how it took fold. Please continue. Um, yes, yeah, so in the 19th, so we have Aboriginal people demanding land to protect it, especially sacred sites. Um, and then in the um, 1972, we have a really key activist um, or protests called the Tent Embassy, um, where young urban Aboriginal people um, were disappointed by the government's new policy, which only, uh, which didn't give land back to Aboriginal people, but granted special leases. So they staged a, a protest 
in front of Parliament House in Canberra, and it's called the Tent Embassy to highlight that Aboriginal people were treated like aliens in, in our own country. Um, and, you know, they use tents and, and umbrellas to also symbolise the poverty that Aboriginal people, um, you know, lived in. And this protest got a lot of popular support and Aboriginal people from across the country started driving and flying into Canberra to, um, you know, participate. And so eventually the, we had a change in government and the new government promised to give um, create a Land Rights Act, which it did in 1976, but that only related to the Northern Territory. And the government sort of said that then state governments should follow by creating their own Land Rights Act. And this is what happened in the 1980s. In a, you know, mm -hmm. each state gradually developed its own um, act. Unfortunately, here in Western Australia, uh, a Land Rights Act was never passed. Um, but, but these Land Rights Acts really only um, allowed Aboriginal people um, who lived in those areas to, to stay living on their land um, and to sort of hunt and forage, but um, they had limited economic opportunities. Um, and also it was seen as, Land Rights Acts were seen as the government giving land because it was the moral thing to do and it was compensation for the past whereas it didn't really recognise the inherent right of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as First Nations um, to, you know, have their land. Um, and so in the 1980s, we start to see a build-up of Aboriginal people arguing for native title, you know, so the, the recognition of Aboriginal law and sovereignty over the land, and um, that's finally recognised by the courts in 1992. So the whole 80s is, is a period of, um, you know, some successes with gaining land, but, um, you know, constant um, pushing and campaigning for more land and um, better, um, more secure um, recognition of, um, you know. And th this was reflected. Um, rights to land. <laughs> and this was reflected in the music as such. Thank you, Chanel. I want to bring our next guest into the fold now, who's also joining us by Zoom from Central Australia in Arenda country. We have Lori May. She is a poet and former label manager for Kama Music. Lori, hello. How are you doing? I am awake at 3 a.m. I'm doing great. <laughs> All right. Well, we appreciate you too, Lori, taking the time. And I got to ask you, what are your favorite bands from this era we're talking about? 1980s, early 90s? Oh, look, I don't want to be one of those people that's like, oh, you've probably never heard of them, um, but I'm I'm going to do it and I hope you have heard of them. Uh, but if, obviously, No Fixed Address, amazing, amazing band when they uh, brought that album out in 1982. Um, my favourite song on that album is, is actually uh, Pigs, uh, which is about police brutality. It's an incredible song. Um, but my favourite bands are actually from the APY lands, which is the Ananu Pitinjara lands um, of Central um, Australia. Uh, and Wedgetail Eagle Band have got to be one of my favourites, as well as uh, Ilkari Maru Band. So they were two bands that formed in the 
in the 80s out of communities uh, in the APY lands and they were very, very political and um, not always, uh, but, yeah, they were, they were amazing desert surf rock bands. And what was it like for these bands during that era? You, know, you mentioned some of them were very politically themed, others not so much. Was it just, was it a completely new sound that people just had never heard before? What was the response? Um, it definitely was like, like desert surf rock. I mean, it's kind of weird because we're in the middle of the desert, right? So we're in, and we've got this emerging, you know, surf rock psych scene, which is heavily inspired by, um, you know, bands like, like you know, people like Jimi Hendrix and it, it's mind blowing to hear it and to kind of, I wasn't around back then. I was, I was, uh, I was only very small, um, but I'm really good friends with some of the children and grandchildren of the founding members of those bands and like, man, the way they talk about music and the way that they describe it and the feelings of empowerment that music was giving them, because like as Shino was saying that, uh, you know, there was the push to give land back and there was these movements that were sort of generating steam to give land back. But you like, it take Maralinga, for example, I don't know if you know much about Maralinga, but the British in the 1950s and 60s used Central Australia as an as um, atomic bomb testing site. And in 1984, they gave back a good chunk of the land, uh, but it's uninhabitable, completely wrecked. Jeez. Oh, wow. So, and then what about some of the non-Aboriginal? Because Australia, there's such a tradition there. You know, we mentioned In Excess and um, we mentioned uh, uh, Men at Work, but also like ACDC, you know, that whole metal sound. I mean, were some of these Aboriginal issues, were any, were any of those issues reflected in their music as well in the mainstream? Uh, in mainstream, like you had bands like, you know, Goanna, obviously Shane Howard was really political. Uh, he brought out the, sorry, it's really early in the morning. So if I get anything wrong, like just apologies in advance, but Shane Howard's album, and they have the, the song Solid Rock, which is, you know, we're standing on uh, solid rock, standing on sacred ground. And that was like, that was pretty up there as well as, you know, like Midnight Oil. They were sort of the two that stand out for me as non non-indigenous white or white fella, or as we say, cardia here. So they were like two of the the kind of cardiacs that were really embracing, um, you know, uh, land rights and recognition and treaty and yeah. All of it. Awesome. Let's hear now from Grant Harrison. He's a guitarist and founding member of the Aboriginal band Blackfire. I asked him about the origins of the name Blackfire, Aboriginal activism in the 1980s and early 90s, and their new upcoming album, Regeneration. Yeah, Blackfire was from a, a well-known Aboriginal activist here in Victoria. His name was Bruce McGuinness. It was a movie documentary on urban Aboriginal peoples in the cities. I think it was out in the early 70s. So we took a name from that, that documentary because it was about urban Aboriginal people, which we are. It was just a very well-known documentary that appeared here in the early 70s about the fire in the valley and... Uh, you know, the the um, land rights movement, all that sort of stuff. So it was a real appropriate name for us. What was the response when, when you folks first came on the scene and, and were people receptive and overall, did they did they like what, they, what, you, what you folks stood for? Or did you get any pushback? 
Um, look, there's, there were some times when we were trying to get gigs in pubs where they knew that we were an Aboriginal band, that we had Aboriginal people coming along and that they were loathe to sort of book us because they didn't want an Aboriginal clientele. And that was sort of towards the late 80s. But after a while, I mean, people got to know that we're a good time, fun band. We were politically astute. You know, our songs were educational. We weren't sort of in your face band, like, you know, sort of um, loud and, and provocative. We were more about education. That's what our songs were always about. Now, the 80s was a time here politically where the Aboriginal um, movement started to gather a lot of momentum. Um, a lot of the activists around the country were spruiking. Um, you know, the 88 centenary came along where White Australia was celebrating 200 years. We were protesting in Sydney. Over 200,000 people attended that march just to let people know that you're on Aboriginal land and that we're still here. And the radical um, activists in those days done some great work. You know, land rights was really on the agenda over here. Um, there was changes of government from um, Liberal government, which is very conservative, into a Labor government who were more progressive in terms of Aboriginal rights and culture. And, you know, a lot of Aboriginal departments were formed, a lot of Aboriginal funding and grants was about. So it was an exciting time. It was a time of change here in the 80s. And then the, up until the mid-90s, that continued as well. So it was a really sort of um, bubbling uh, time here in Australia. And lots of things were happening in this country. Now, Grant, on the new album coming out, Regeneration, do you have any political songs? Oh, look, man, no doubt. I mean, um, you know, this song's called In My Mind's Eye, which is a reflective song about coming together and, and, and being as one and sharing the country. Um, there's a song called Talk and Treaty, because in Victoria, here we negotiate with government uh, from July onwards with treaties of the Victorian Aboriginal people here, traditional owner groups. So um, treaty is really on the agenda. So we've got a song called Talk and Treaty, which is a cracker. They are political, if you're not Indigenous, obviously, but they're land songs to us and, and country songs. And, you know, once again, they're all educational songs. They're catchy, they're mel melodic, but they also have very good messages in the songs. That was Grant Hansen from the band Blackfire. Grant is also a radio and television broadcaster, and Blackfire's new album is titled Regeneration, and it comes out June 23rd and will be available on iTunes. Let's go to the phones now. We've got Chanupa up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, how are you, man? Have a good day and the brothers that are on. Listen, Sonny Gaw was one of the original Aboriginal singers and artists that came to America way back in the late 60s and early 70s, okay? And don't forget, people, Sonny Gaw was the one who written that song for the Hawaiian singer, and folk guy, you know, a Don Ho. The song was called Tiny Bubbles in the Bottle of My Wine. That brother from Australia did all that input for them because Hawaiian people, they still got their tradition, the same as my Aborigine people over there. And for a lot of you that are tuning in, Chanupa was in Australia. I was down in Sydney many, many years ago as an activist network, and I proud the guy talking from Blackfire about how people were orchestrating in the activist movement. And thank you, Sean, for having me on. I give my heart out to my brothers in the struggle and the music industry. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Chanupa. And boy, that was a, a deep track you mentioned there. Tiny Bubbles, uh, written for Don Ho. I want to ask Lori. Lori, this uh, Aboriginal musician that Chanupa mentions, I believe he said Johnny Gaw. Are you familiar? Um, no. 
And you I, can you repeat the name? I'm like I'm hitting the blank. He said either Johnny Gaw, maybe Sonny Ha, Sonny Gaw. The song was Tiny Sorry, Bubbles. No, I don't know. I'm not familiar. Okay. No worries. It sounds like it was uh, quite a few years ago, but wow, a lot of interest here in the United States with natives, Chanupas up in, in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. And um, how does that make you feel, Lori, to, to, to hear interest from, from folks out here in the States, indigenous folks that have a passion for your music, for your culture? I mean, Chanupa mentioned he's even been to Australia before. Yeah, that's really exciting. I think sometimes we, you know, we have our our little our little island home and we uh kind of forget that other people are out there and other people are interested in us and I think that's one of the things that I really enjoy doing is always sharing sharing music and sharing knowledge and uh, with other people and I mean I guess you know I'm a millennial and so I'm like how did that happen before we had the internet and you know and it happened via you know cassettes and records and and movement of people to actually make things uh make things happen but it's uh yeah it's mind-blowing thank you well tell us more about the central australian aboriginal media association kama um yeah so kama was established in um uh Two. Um, that was by Frida Glynn. I feel like I should have studied up. Uh, it was Frida <laughs> Glynn, um, uh, Mr. McCumber, and uh, I want to say, I'm going to say Jack Pittman and Philip Batty. And so there was three people, they got together and they uh, kind of decided that, you know, they wanted to find a platform to showcase Aboriginal um, music and, and art and storytelling and news articles like for and by Aboriginal people. Uh, and they formed Aitkin FM um, and it was Aboriginal owned. So it was the first Aboriginal owned, um, you know, radio station. And it was, it was actually really cool. So they used to make, it was a lot of the music was recorded um, in a, in a kind of stony mud hut kind of, style building out little sister's camp which is just out of town and it was recorded in the in the out of the boot of a car and this was then put onto cassette tapes along with news articles and items and they were shared out to remote communities because we didn't have uh we didn't have the infrastructure to be able to share media any other way i mean look, most of our remote communities still have terrible access to internet so it's it's not a lot has changed like a lot has changed, but not a lot has changed. Okay. So. Well, when you mention the technology issues there, I mean, the streaming revolution and just the completely new way that music is distributed and listened to today, has that had as much of an impact there in Australia as it has in other parts of the world? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, in the 80s and 90s, particularly in the 90s, bands could actually make uh, a bit of a living um, out of music. And now you're seeing, you know, if you stream a song on Spotify, for example, or one of them other, um, one of them other ones, you know, you're looking at if it, for one song, one listen, it's zero point zero 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 two of a cent. So it takes a it takes a lot of people listening to your song to even get to one cent. Um, mm. And it, so it has definitely made it much harder for bands. Um, and I know that's harder for musicians all over the industry. I'm not. I'm not saying it's not, but it's definitely made it much harder for Indigenous people in remote Aboriginal communities to to kind of live in that space. 
Well, if you are a fan of Australian music, if you're familiar with some of the mainstream acts like Men at Work, ACDC, how much do you know about the Aboriginal music movement that was occurring during the early 1980s through the early 1990s? Some really legendary bands, performers, songwriters, and we're going to hear more music. We're going to talk more about their legacy right after this break. Would love to get some more calls going. one 800 996-2848. Any other listeners who've been to Australia, let us know what you liked about it. We'd love to hear your stories. 1-800-996-2848. This Father's Day, you can give your dad a truly unique gift from SweetGrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support for journalism that raises the awareness of child well-being to citizens and to policymakers provided by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, building a brighter future for children, families, and communities. Information at aecf.org. You're listening to Native America Calling, and there's still time to join our conversation about Aboriginal rock music from the 1980s. You can call us at 1-800-996-2848 or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. Give us a call. You can also listen back to Native America Calling as a podcast. Today's show is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Let's take a listen now to another song by No Fixed Address. This song is titled, We Have Survived. It's written by member Bart Willoughby. Ricky Harrison called this one of the anthems for Aboriginal people in Australia.
That was Ricky Harrison, and we have survived from the band No Fixed Address. And, you know, I, w- I want to ask you, I mean, some of these songs that we're talking about today that we're listening to, these date way back, way back to the 1980s, 40-plus years. And how common are they right now in Australia? Do you hear them uh, on local radio? Do people play these songs at, at parties and such? Oh, um, I, I, I don't think I'm really one to say because I'm a bit of a homebody now. Um, <laughs> but you know, I remember when I was a teenager in the '80s that, um, I mean, when I, when I lived up in Broome, there would be bands coming through to play in the pub, and there'd be Aboriginal bands like, um, you know, scrap metal and um, and Coloured Stone. Um, and then we used to have um, music video shows called Rage that used to play Aboriginal bands. So I think now I, I don't really, um, I'm, you know, I'm too old now. I don't listen to a lot of music. So I'm not sure. <laughs> Laurie was probably better. Gee, Chanel, you make it sound. <laughs> <laughs> you make it sound like you're so so not into the into the scene anymore but let me ask Lori Lori how about you I mean do you hear this kind of music on a daily basis still in Australia um I do and I think we (laughs) certainly do in Central Australia I mean there's been a really interesting um evolution of the sound here in the desert and uh the the kind of like desert rock vibe has definitely shifted in favor uh, of desert reggae so we hear a lot like but you still hear the classics, like dri- cars driving down. I live on the main road, and so, you, you know, cars driving along, and you can kind of, you get to hear it pumping, and it's so awesome for me. When I was working at um, at Karma Music, I had the the privilege of remastering some of these old albums um, from the 80s, and I say old albums, and I'm just so sorry for everyone, everyone <laughs> if I've made us all feel really old, um, but they are called Vintage Remasters. Uh and um, it, it was amazing taking these these albums and putting them through that remastering process and hearing them come to live again uh, to life again and putting them out across across the radio and uh, yeah and you can hear it and for me because I spent so much time with these songs like I can pick up on the intro and I'm like ah oh, yes I know that song that's Ilkari Maru band or to Chikala Desert Oaks and it's just fantastic. Well, let's hear another track. We have time for one more. This song is called Treaty. It's by the band Yathu Yathu Yindi, and it peaked at number 11 on the Australian Recording Industry Association singles charts. Let's take a listen. Oh, we're not going to listen to Treaty Quest just quite yet. Sorry, folks. We're going to do something a little bit different. We've got uh, another interview here now with Bunna Lawry. And he's the founder of the band Colored Stone that is still performing and recording. I asked Bunna what he recalls from the early days of trying to get audiences to hear his music. We started in 1977. This is our 46th year, you know, we've been in operation and uh, and our battle's been a long one against all odds from, from racism to trying to break down the barriers and walls of, the, of being an Aboriginal band in this country. It's been really hard. We had a couple of great songs that weren't recognized, a song called Black Boy and uh, Dancing in the Moonlight, which was also acknowledged in the Rolling Stone magazine in the 80s. If we were a white band, we would have had a two-year straight off. I shine black. 
Well, if we go back to to the early 1980s, late 1970s, I mean, there were some other Aboriginal bands that were they're touring and recording. I know No Fixed Address was out there and Warumpi Band. And if you go back, Bunna, and reflect on the last 40-plus years, how has the, the music industry there in Australia evolved? And, and is it better now for Aboriginal bands? We just signed up with Universal Music, so it's it's incredible that we... and. Only, only recently we got all our back catalog back. You know, it was held back by another group of Aboriginal Indigenous um, record company in, in Central Australia. And then we were with uh, other like BMG and all that, and uh, it never really helped you. You know, you'd go into a record shop and you see, you'd see twenty cassettes of a of Midnight Oil, and you'd go and try to see Carlton. You'd, you'd be lucky to find one cassette. You know, mm-hmm. and that wasn't wasn't giving us support because it was it was you know we felt we've there were, there were days and nights that I would want to give it up, but when morning would come, I said, no way. I said, I'm going to let them let them uh, screw me over. And I said, um, we should be treated equal. Yeah, yeah. What a sound. Um, I'm really grateful that I'm here today and still sharing my music with, with you know, doesn't matter. Even white, you know, white people now starting to like our music. So, uh, and uh, one day that I would have dreamt of going to the Navajo country, you know, because I heard there were a lot of radio stations. I, got a st- I still got a sticker on my guitar there. Never a radio station or something. I've been wondering how I can hook up to those radio stations, like your radio stations, so that right. you know your people can hear our music. Because you know your 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 black people are pretty much like our brothers and our family because we are we're the same skin. We call that you know Araru. Araru in a language means the light coloured Aborigine, and Matari means the dark skin. Matari people, they just you gotta every time we've got to educate them and teach them. A, about the laws and, and the rules of Aboriginal people's country and uh, traditions and customs and how, how they how they care for country and how, how they look after it and how they do the governing every day, governing of, you know, to look after country and uh, look after their families. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to do and uh, music is is um, my backbone and, uh, you know, my my culture is it's my, it's my spirit, my soul, body, you know, of my grandfather and ancestors so uh, I have to carry that and um, teach the younger people that That's Bunna Lowry from the band Colored Stone. We're listening now to his song, No More Boomerang, which is a satirical song about how life has changed for Aboriginal people. We also heard Black Boy. Both songs were very important in bringing Aboriginal issues to broader audiences. And I want to ask Shino, um, that song Black Boy just really, really hits hard, and uh, it's got kind of a, a country kind of music sound to it with the guitar and everything, and uh, just how prolific is that song, Black Boy? And um, in a larger context, you know, I mean, what does it really mean? What is that song speaking to? Well, it's just really speak. It was such a powerful song for Aboriginal people because it's it's saying you should be proud of your skin, you know, and 
and uh, the, your, your black skin and um, be proud to be Aboriginal. And, um, you know, that was such an important message after, um, you know, decades and decades of assimilation and um, Indigenous people being treated as second-class citizens in our own country. So it really resonated. And, and I, I think I read that it sort of, charted in Fiji as well so you know I think that that message of um black pride and um you know kind of can go beyond Australia so it was a really um powerful song when I spoke with Bunny he, he said that when they do shows sometimes people will just ask them to play that song over and over in honor of different families and they'll play it like 12 12 times in a single night that same song black boy just people just love it so so much and geez uh it's been a really fun show today talking about music listening to a lot of really great stuff as well and i want to go back to Lori may now and uh Lori, what's going on now with the aboriginal music scene there in australia bring us up to date um, well, I think what's really interesting is, you know, uh, Bunna talking about the, the paperwork and being tied up in that whole situation. And there was a lot of bands that signed contracts in the 80s and 90s that really, they, I mean, those contracts really took advantage of a lot of people. <clears throat> in a lot of ways, they opened up a lot of doors. It opened up a lot of opportunities. And I don't think anyone at the at the time could have kind of, um maybe done something differently I'm not sure that's my opinion but um uh yeah I've worked with bands like Black Belly Music to ensure that they got all their masters and their rights back and it's really important for bands to to get those and have those if they if they can manage them and want to manage them um we don't really have I don't know I feel like the Aboriginal music scene here at the moment um is a little bit scattered uh, we're certainly still looking for that kind of unifying space. Everyone's sort of, and I guess it's the music industry all over the world, isn't it? Everyone's kind of doing their own thing a lot as we've seen the the disillusion of a lot of, of labels and how the industry's changed. And like we talked about before, streaming has really impacted that. We have a lot of political issues here in Central Australia and being an Aboriginal band and putting on gigs is really hard. There's a fabulous event called Bush Bands Bash run by Music NT um, that was in town. And, you know, the powers that be kind of pushed it outside. So now it's like just, it's uh, just out of town, like five minutes out. So, and there's, you know, there's the constant political threats that we face to actually stop having uh, Aboriginal music events in this, in this town, whether it's venues who won't book you. I mean, yeah, I've tried booking bands in and in a lot of spaces and it can be really challenging because we still face with a lot of racism and a lot of um, blockages uh, to having our music heard. Um, so when you do get a gig, it's pretty good and everyone shows up and uh, it is a lot of fun and there are still great events that can showcase music, um, which is awesome, but it's definitely challenging. I think we're probably in the most challenging uh, time uh, organisationally for music uh, that, that we've kind of ever faced. Well, indeed, it is an interesting time uh, for music in Australia, Aboriginal music especially. And boy, this was just a, a really fun show for us here at Native America Calling to produce and uh, got to meet some really cool people, listen to some great music. And it's just so inspiring. This music is 
40 years old and still going strong. And something tells me in another 40 years, people will still be listening to songs like Black Boy and groups like Colored Stone and No Fixed Address and many, many others. Well, folks, we have reached the end of our hour, so I want to thank our two live guests today, both Dr. Shino Kanishi and Lori May. Join us next week for another lineup of conversations about Indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Reno Spencer is the engineer. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Quantic Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm host Sean Spruce. Have a safe weekend. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.